Hi everybody, Chris Roberts here from I Saw It on Linden Street. You know, it's been a heck of a year, and while we've been making some progress, due to the ongoing impact of COVID-19, vulnerable communities are still out there struggling, with seniors being one of the leading groups that are in particular need of help. Mandated lockdowns have left many isolated and have been deprived of basic needs like nutritious meals and social interaction. Here's the good news. For the second year in a row, the month of April is going to see the good folks at Podchaser once again raising funds for Meals on Wheels America's Go Further Fund. And you listeners can help make a difference at zero cost to you. For every podcast review that gets left on Podchaser, they're going to donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels, and you can leave as many of those as you like. In addition, every reply to those reviews you leave, that's going to make the amount double. So how can you help? Well, it's easy. All you have to do is go to podchaser.com. You'll create a user account. It's free and totally worth it. And then you're going to be able to go to town listening and leaving reviews up to 20 characters minimum for your favorite podcasts or individual episodes to your heart's delight. Hey, perhaps there's a certain cult film podcast you'd like to give five stars to? Just saying. Your reviews are going to translate into cash that's going to increase the Meals on Wheels Go Further Fund, and that will translate into ensuring that millions of seniors across the country continue to have access to food, human interaction, and assistance. I'm personally asking you to help in this process, and I challenge you. What do you have to lose here? It costs you nothing, you incidentally help the shows you love, and you're absolutely helping an impacted community for a worthy cause. So please, let's make April a great one and help Meals on Wheels today. Thank you for your time. Show starts in one minute. Homicide, Pitton. Zodiac speaking. I am not happy you gave someone else front page coverage. Shut up. You just listen. You called the information I gave you an elaborate hoax. You wanted me to furnish more details before you would give me a front page write-up. Before I give you any more details about the good times I had at the reservoir in Green Rock Park, I'd like to know, are the police having a good time with the cryptogram? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. In the Christmas episode at the reservoir, police were wondering as to how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. Well, I taped a small pen light to the barrel of my gun. When I aimed the gun at my victims, the bullet hits right in the center of the light. I think this deserves front page coverage. I want headlines! I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, fair be warned, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. A little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and if I'm doing my job, hey, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Now, fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. We are winding down our month-long theme, Drive In, Drive Out. That's been our selection of some strange exploitation flicks that we think are sure to raise an eyebrow, curve a spine, and make you question your cinematic choices. This week, we have a strange, ripped-from-the-headlines-of-your-local-newspaper shocker. 
screening Tom Hansen's 1971 cult horror film, The Zodiac Killer. Join us! I have a confession to make. I'm really not much of a true crime fan. Which, even I, will say, taking a step back from admitting that, based on all the crap that I watch, that is sort of weird. I guess the concept of people having horrible things done to them without the context of a fictional plot that I know is absolutely a work of fantasy just makes actual crime unpleasant for me. What, you've unearthed a whole new set of tapes that cover the grim doings of the Night Stalker? Well, that's a hard pass for me. I got better things to do, like watch this film about, you know, a mutant zombified bear that's going to go on a rampage through a children's fat camp. You know, come to think of it, if you spin that idea as a horror comedy, I think it has some legs. Hmm. I'm going to write that down. But no matter. It's just not really my thing, but... I'm related to, friends with, and I've married a person who just loves true crime. And so I'm familiar with far more of it than I probably should be. And they all can make up for my lack of enthusiasm. That said, I do have some knowledge of various serial killers out there, and while I would never say I'm in that group of people who's going to tell you, oh boy, let's discuss our favorite serial killers, I suppose if I had to get one on the board, it would have to be the Zodiac Killer. And honestly, for me, it's more of a cultural impact kind of thing than anything else. And even that was something that I didn't come upon until I started college and was exposed to this film. So let me set the scene. It's spring of 2003. I'm a sophomore in college, and I'm taking my 200-level capstone for history. It's kind of like the real litmus test to weed out those who claim they want to study history and to see if they can meet the challenge of actually applying what they've learned with their undergrad base knowledge to write their first real serious historical research paper. People walk into it thinking that it's going to be really simple until they're told they can write about whatever they want, and then quickly that begins to spin out of control on them. For the record, I equally found myself to be at a complete loss. I wanted to do something with film, but I sort of had to angle it for myself to try to, you know, find a way that I can approach it with a tie-in to what I would need to make all the markers on the syllabus for the history class. So I wanted to select some sort of event in American history, and then I can kind of pose some sort of hypothesis about how it was influencing films of the day. The problem was finding something that I was both interested in and that I could have easy access to resources for. Now, this also happened to coincide with me having received the Dirty Harry box set on DVD for the holidays that year. And while I'm hemming and hawing in my days about what to write about, at night I'm going home to my dorm room and I'm enjoying Clint Eastwood delivering out his own brand of rough justice as Officer Harry Callahan, enjoying it with my roommate on a regular basis. I'm complaining about my lack of ideas for topics while simultaneously talking about how we've been marathoning Dirty Harry films when I go to work. And the mighty Xerxes looks at me like I've lost my mind. And he turns to me and says, Why don't you use that? That what? Dirty Harry. Why don't you use Dirty Harry and talk about the Zodiac Killer? Use it as a jumping off point. So I had to then sheepishly state, well... I really don't know anything about that. And thus, with a little guidance and some serious ribbing from Xerxes, I was put on a path of creating a solid bedrock as to how to research how the actions of one spree murderer in the late 1960s and early 1970s both terrorized San Francisco and likewise had a major effect on the films of the day, inspiring both the original Dirty Harry film in 1971 and this week's film, which was given to me as required viewing by Xerxes himself to understand just what I was getting myself into. So strap in. 
because before we get into the nuts and bolts of this absolutely crazy story about this week's film, we need to understand the events that inspired it. These are the hard facts that we at least know to date about the man who has been dubbed the Zodiac Killer. A man who openly operated and killed victims from October of 1969 until about 1974, when his missives to the authorities stopped coming and the case went cold. While through his writings he had claimed that he had murdered some upwards of 37 victims, it's far more likely than that number might be somewhere in the low to mid-20s, with five confirmed kills that the authorities are aware of and two injured survivors who were able to tell the tale of their encounters. The first killing that the authorities attribute to the Zodiac were at the Lake Herman Road murders, one Betty Lou Jensen and one David Arthur Faraday and it occurred on December 20th, 1968. Returning home from a Christmas concert, the high school students, who were on a first date, made a stop for some food at a local eatery, and then parked out at a lover's lane. It's suspected that the killer pulled up beside them in his vehicle, ordered the couple out of their car, and then shot Faraday in the head when he exited his side of the vehicle. Ms. Jensen was shot five times in the back, about 30 feet from the car, clearly trying to evade her attacker. The Solano County Sheriff's Department looked into the killing, but with no leads or motives, the case quickly went cold. The Zodiac would then strike again on July 4th of 1969 at the Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo. Darlene Farron and Michael Majo were parked in their car at midnight when another car drove up alongside of them and then quickly drove off. That same car came back 10 minutes later, and the driver exited the vehicle, shining a flashlight on the couple and leveling a Luger pistol. The killer opened fire on the couple, hitting them multiple times. He began to depart, but Majo's moaning caused him to return and shoot each of the victims two more times before driving off. The attacker ended up calling the police to take the credit for both this killing and claimed also to be responsible for the murders of Faraday and Jensen as well. Theron was killed during the attack, but Majo survived the encounter and was able to give a description to the police. It was a white male in his late 20s to early 30s, approximately 200 pounds, clocking in at about 5 foot 8 inches, with short, light brown hair that was also curly. The following month, on August 1st, 1969, the killer sent three almost identical letters to the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner, in which he took credit for the murders and then, uniquely, included on each of them one-third of a cryptogram that he demanded each of the papers publish on the front page, threatening that he would go on a killing spree if he did not see this happen. The Chronicle would go on to publish the cryptogram, and it would do it on page four, putting with it, just to set things into context, quotes from the Vallejo police, noting that they were not exactly sure if they were dealing with the true murderer here or if this was just some sort of imposter trying to get attention. And so they requested, in a missive, that the mysterious author please write them a second letter and include some facts that would help confirm his identity. The following week, on August 7, 1969, a letter addressed to the San Francisco Examiner arrived. Identifying himself as the Zodiac, he included details about the murders that had not been provided to the public, and noted that if the police were able to crack his cryptogram, they would be able to catch him. The following day, August 8th, North Salinas High School teacher Donald Jean Harden and his wife Betty June were able to crack the 408-character cipher. And while the message itself did not contain any information about the killer's real identity, it did give a bit of grim insight into his mind. I like killing people because it's so much fun. It's more fun than killing wild game in the forest, because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience, and it's even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and all that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name, 
because you'll just try to slow me down and stop my collection of slaves for my afterlife. About a month later, on September 27, 1969, college students Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were picnicking together in a late afternoon tryst at Lake Berryessa up in Napa County. A man approached them, garbed in all black, wearing a homemade medieval-style executioner hood that he had clipped sunglasses to to block out the eye holes. He had also draped a smock over his chest that had a white cross with a circle around it. The man leveled a gun at the couple and explained to them that he was an escaped convict who had supposedly killed a guard and stolen a car, and now he was in need of a new vehicle to get himself to Mexico, so he would be taking theirs. Hartnell at the time considered him to be actually a robber and not a threat. He thought what he was doing would actually help get this man out of here. The masked individual forced Hartnell to tie up Shepard with lengths of plastic clothesline he had brought, and then he proceeded to tie up Hartnell and then tighten Shepard's own bonds. When Hartnell told the man he had money in his pocket, the man responded, I don't want your money, I just want to kill you. He then put the pistol away and pulled out a knife and began to attack Hartnell, stabbing him six times in the back. Hartnell would later recount that he thought at the moment, this guy's not going to stop. And so he held his breath and he feigned death. A horrifying choice, as Shepard would struggle and attempt to dodge the attacks that came her way, rolling around and receiving ten knife wounds to her back and abdomen in the process. The killer then walked over to Hartnell's car and wrote with a black pen, Vallejo, 122068. 7469 September 27 69 6:30 p.m. by knife seemingly signing it with his cross circle sigil he then left the scene the zodiac would later call the police some 40 minutes up the road from a payphone in downtown napa wanting to report a double murder that he had committed before leaving the booth the couple were both still alive and began to scream for help, their cries eventually heard by a father and son who were fishing on the lake. They reached out and contacted the authorities, and when they got there, Shepard was still conscious and able to tell some details about the attack. Hartnell had been trying to crawl partly up the hill and he had almost made it to the road before he lost consciousness due to his injuries. He was found and carried back by park ranger Dennis Land. Shepard would end up slipping into a coma and would die two days later from her extreme extensive wounds, but Hartnell would remain in critical condition and would go on to survive the entire ordeal and be able to aid the police in getting yet another description. Hartnell would state in an interview with KPX News that he was certain that he was going to die and so he tried to instead focus on everything that was going on around him for self-preservation. He identified the man who attacked him as being white, standing about 5'11", and weighing over 170 pounds. Both Shepard and Hartnell would agree that the man's light brown hair could be seen poking through his mask. Two weeks passed, and on October 11, 1969, the Zodiac struck again. Climbing into the back of a cab driven by one Paul Stein, the Zodiac ended up entering in at the intersection of Mason and Gary, and then requested that Stein take him up to Presidio Heights to Maple Street. Stein had, for some reason, driven one block further than anticipated, and that is where the Zodiac shot him in the head, took the man's wallet, keys and ripped a piece of Stein's shirt. Teenagers who were watching from across the street called the cops and stated that they had heard the shot and they had seen a man wiping down the taxi before walking up the street towards the Presidio, describing him to the police as a white man aged 35 to 45, around 5'10", and between 175 and 200 pounds, with light brown hair, a crew cut, and he was wearing glasses. Police officers Donald Folk and Eric Zelms were patrolling the area that night, and they did a drive-by and passed a man who fit that exact description. But 
By the time the call had come in, the police dispatcher had initially reported that the suspect was a black adult male. Jeez. It was only after a corrected description came out almost a half hour later that the officers realized they had driven right past the suspect. The Zodiac wrote another letter to the San Francisco Chronicle a few days later on October 13th, where he claimed that he had committed the murder, as well as the aforementioned people up in North Bay, and he included a bloody piece of Stein's shirt as proof, which started a panic in the city of San Francisco, with the offhand comment that, School children make such nice targets. I think I'll wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. An individual ended up calling the Oakland Police Department on October 20th, claiming to be the Zodiac and demanding to speak with either F. Lee Bailey or Melvin Belly, both of which were popular, popular attorneys at the time, either of which he would speak out to on the local KGO TV morning talk show, AM San Francisco. Belly happened to be the one that was available, and he ended up appearing on the program, where the supposed killer did call in and converse with and agree to meet with the attorney. But in the end, nobody showed up. The killer would go on to write more letters, including a new 340-character cryptogram. He would write to the Chronicle again on November 9th, claiming that he had actually spoken to the officers on the night of Stein's murder, and he had purposely led them astray. He would communicate this way with the authorities on and off over the next three years, taunting the police, making veiled threats to cops, journalists, and attempting to take credit for other murders in the area. That is, before completely going radio silent for a period of, again, almost three years. The last official letter from the Zodiac was mailed to the Los Angeles Times on March 13, 1971, before the quiet set in. It's here, during this period of quiet unease, is when the authorities and journalists were still trying to attempt to track down the killer. And it is here that a single man took it upon himself to try to draw out the monster in his own way. And he did it the only way that seemed reasonable to him. He made a movie. In the late 1960s, Tom Hansen was a fast food entrepreneur who, for a time, ended up owning and operating somewhere between 60 to 70 Pizza Man pizzerias across California. He actually could not pin down an exact number himself. Now, to date, Hansen has never been very forthcoming about just exactly how he wound up being so underwater when it came to all of his businesses. But in interviews that he gave to the website Temple of Schlock back in 2010, he did mention that his underwriters could no longer cover the payment costs that Hansen had occurred during his dealings. Hansen ended up losing about $8 million overnight, and in recent years he looked back on the concept rather pragmatically. I should have known something was wrong with that company. When you've got the head stock guy with a patch over one fucking eye... Hansen took everything in stride, however, staying in the restaurant business and managing uh, some other Southern California eateries like a few A&Ws and a few Chicken Delight restaurants. Before getting into the food industry, though, Hansen himself was an aspiring actor with very, very limited success. Maybe it was just a bolt of genius. Maybe it was a really stupid idea. But as Hansen was floundering with his own business, it occurred to him that perhaps there was a better way. Perhaps he could take a shortcut and gain a lot of fame and notoriety fast. The film industry was hard enough to get into. So he was going to be making a very, very low budget picture as a first time director. And that being said, why not make a plan for yourself to go for the brass ring? Taking $13,000 that he managed to scrape together from friends and family, that would translate into about $85,000 in 2021 money. He set out to make a picture about the Zodiac Killer, with the explicit goal of angering 
and then baiting the man to come and see his film in a rented theater. It's here that Hansen and his band of friends would spring a trap. They would plan to catch the killer, which then, of course, they would be able to parlay into fame and fortune, and that would all come from stopping such a monster, and that would open up future acting and directing roles. What could possibly go wrong with this plan? Seriously, to borrow an analogy made by the great comedian Dana Gould, this is like announcing that you'd like to become the baker of delicious cakes. So once you run for and win the office of the president, they're gonna have to let you bake all the cakes you want. Seems sort of backwards to me. But Hansen had friends, family members, and unknowns star in his film. And in his own words about the project, seriously, nobody here got paid. Actor Hal Reed was brought on board to play the lead character of Jerry. Actor Bob Jones was cast as the angry truck driver Grover. And in an interesting connection, the actor Doodles Weaver, Sigourney Weaver's uncle, ended up starring in this film, and is actually, for the time, one of the bigger names that's involved in this picture. Hansen saved a bunch of money utilizing guerrilla filmmaking techniques, as well as putting in a bunch of wives and girlfriends of the many businesses and building owners that he put in this picture. And that would make up for the fact that he could not pay to rent anything. He shot the film on a shoestring over the winter months of 1971, and he was ready to release the film that very spring in April. Which all is a different story unto itself. But, I mean, seriously, you folks have been ever so good listening to this whole lead-up and backstory. How's about this? Let's get to that trailer. What do you say? We open on a quote from journalist Paul Avery about wanting to make people aware that the present danger of this killer truly exists, and mentions that the film we are now seeing is based on known facts, before we then get to witness an African-American police officer being shot and killed seemingly at random while he sits in his patrol car waiting for his partner to run into a building to take care of a task. The killer then cryptically asks the audience in a voiceover, why don't they just learn? Why? Why don't you idiots ever learn? You walk around like everything is all right. Don't you know people like me exist? You're still alive. Well, maybe you've been lucky. We are then introduced to Grover as played by Bob Jones, a sad, down-on-his-luck trucker who hates his ex-wife Helen, as played by Dion Markovich, with a passion, and who laments that she keeps him from seeing his little girl, all while trying to extort more money from him. Grover's best friend in his bachelorhood is Jerry, as played by Hal Reed, a testy mailman who is always up on what's going on around him, and who's equally annoyed by the people he's forced to deal with along his route, preferring instead to care for his many pet rabbits in his off time. Grover is often trying to get Jerry to be his wingman on his adventures out to bars, something that seems to be sort of something Jerry isn't too thrilled to do. Keeping you busy? Oh, hi, Grover. Oh, gee, I'll be glad when Christmas is over. These cards are breaking my back. Nothing but waste of money. Who gives a damn, anyway? 
Uh, anything for me? Uh, yeah, I think so. Gas. Electric. Telephone. And here's something from the courthouse. Thanks a lot. Oh, uh, are you going to go down to Annette this evening? Gee, I don't know. Jerry is upset to return home to find that his favorite rabbit, Leo, has died, and he again questions the universe as to why good, innocent souls like Leo have to die, while bad people continue to roam the streets. He solemnly buries his friend. Grover, meanwhile, returns home and begins to prepare for a date, putting on his best leisure suit an aggressively bad toupee, and copious amounts of cologne. And then he packs a revolver into his waistband for a night out on the town. His getting ready is juxtaposed with two teens getting ready for a Christmas concert date. Grover ends up hitting the bar, and somehow he manages to get four women to join him at his table. Seeing Jerry across the way, he ends up talking him into coming along and being his wingman, as he attempts to pick up on any of the women in their group. While they're all laughing and having a good time, one of the women compliments Grover's hair, and the toupee accidentally gets knocked from his head. Grover makes a huge scene, getting really angry and shouting, yet Jerry is able to defuse the entire scenario, but we now get to see clearly Grover has an anger management issue. Everybody ends up going home, and then we get to catch up with those teens out on their date, now post-concert, parked at a lover's lane. That is, until they're shot and killed by an unseen assailant. It's here that Grover starts to have a real streak of bad luck. He ends up going to a diner with Jerry, and he gets into an argument with the waitress there, a lady named Gloria, who's played by Norma Michaels, who apparently he had gone out with a few times prior, and she hasn't taken too kindly to how Grover treated her on their past dates, getting drunk, carrying on, and insulting her, and she lets him have it, much to his embarrassment and anger. Later that same night, a fry cook in the diner, played by director Tom Hansen, ends up asking Gloria to give him a lift home, as he is having troubles with his fiancée. When they're out and parking, discussing his problems with his lady friend, they notice that they're being approached by a man with a flashlight, a man they assume is a police officer, and that's just when the unseen killer shoots them both dead in their car. Now, Grover has been out on the regular, carousing and drinking, and when the police bring him in for public intoxication and questioning, while he's told he's the suspect in a killing of the waitress, it doesn't really go well for him, and he begins to have some real worries. Had a little too much white light in last night? Attempted assault, indecent exposure, disturbing the peace, resisting arrest. What's it all about, Grover? I, I don't know, just a, just a bad scene. Everything got out of hand, I guess. Were you often stripping a bar? On a bar. Proceeded to urinate in customers' drinks, yelling, the fountain of youth lives? Hey, wait, I, I remember arguing about a bet, but I, uh, everything just got a little hazy after that. Has that ever happened to you before? I mean, uh, where you couldn't remember what you did or where you were? Never. Short memory, huh? You play the rent on a lot of bars, McDerry. Look, you flunky boy scout. I don't like cops either, but that's my business. Listen, if you don't want to get locked up, I've got bail posted down downstairs. I'm here voluntarily, so you speak to me with respect. Sit down, McDerry. How's this timing check out with the murders? Hey, now, wait a minute. No, you wait a minute. I said sit down. Says he was out drinking, but he can't remember where. I know I did some screwy things last night, but I'm no killer. Well, what do you pack a gun for? Protection. I've got a permit. Yeah, we know, McDerry. But you're a pretty big boy to need protection. You ever use it? Yeah. Yeah, I use it. I target practice a little bit. Besides, it feels good on me. And you know there's been a few truckers hit this year. Well, why do you wear it when you go out boozing? Disguised as a businessman. With hair. Now, wait a minute! Are you ashamed of being a truck driver? No, of course not. Why the big exec act all the time? Well, I... You ever think of psychiatric helping dairy? I don't need a head shrinker. 
So I put on the dog a little. So what? Everybody does. People just don't look up to a truck driver. Besides, I get better treatment and more broads by being a successful businessman. And that's all. Is there anything wrong with that? Could get you into trouble? Maybe there is. The police end up letting him go, but Grover is shaken. We then cut over to the Vallejo newspaper, where the editor has just received a package from a man calling himself the Zodiac, who has supplied a cipher and has admitted that he was the one who murdered the couple in the car and the kids prior. This, of course, makes the papers and causes quite a stir. Grover goes to see his ex-wife and demands that he gets to see his daughter, Julie, as played by Stacy Vadine, ranting and raving when his wife won't let him in for a visit. Breaking into the garage of his old home, Grover secures yet another pistol he had hidden there and runs into the house, taking Julie hostage in a misguided effort to see her. His ex-wife calls the cops and they surround the house, causing Grover to panic. He runs out the front stoop and releases his daughter. Seeing the paper at his feet, commenting on the printed letters, he shouts out to the police officers that it's him. He's the Zodiac, and he opens fire at random, before running out to the back of the house by the pool, where he is shot dead by the police. The officers congratulate themselves on bringing such a horrible killer to justice. That is, until they receive a phone call from the actual Zodiac. Who we get to see is actually Jerry. Jerry goes about his day, and we get to see his big plans. I am the Supreme Zodiac. I must not let the animal nature of man block the way to my spiritual progress. If I am to be happy in paradise, I must collect my slaves now. All those that I kill in this life will be my slaves when I am reborn in paradise. I must kill the serpent which guards this narrow entrance into paradise. But I shall not penetrate until I have proof of my slaves. The process that I have put you through was demanded upon me by the supreme power of another life. You are all now my slaves in this reincarnated life. Apparently, in Jerry's tasteful apartment with all of his hutches of rabbits, he has a full setup of red and black velvet drapes, satanic imagery, and candles that always seem to stay lit 24-7. We see him commit the lakeside murders in his medieval getup, and we have scenes of him committing other murders. Hitting an old woman with a car tire, shooting a cabbie that clearly is based on Paul Stein, going to bars and leaving his sigil traced out in the salt on the countertops. And again police remain baffled, and they turn to anybody for clues, including a very strange psychic. We get to see more random killings that escalate both in their brazenness of daylight occurrences and also just an overall silliness. Jerry goes on to visit his ailing father, who is kept under heavy security in a private hospital room. The man is quite insane and needs to be restrained at all times, and he refuses to acknowledge his son when he comes to visit him, which ends with Jerry shouting and begging his unseen father that he just wants his acceptance and love. That is, before hospital staff come by and ask him to please leave, because you're upsetting your dad. So on the way out, in a fit of rage, Jerry swings by the room of another man who's in traction, and he kills him with a knife. Then he goes outside and shoves a man who is sleeping in a wheeled lounger down a steep hill into traffic. The film ends up wrapping up with Jerry offering a final monologue, claiming that, well, now the world knows he exists. But he brags that he's never going to be caught due to the utter randomness of the murders he's committing, and how men like him are monsters that lurk out in the darkness and are able to quietly blend in with society while he still wreaks his evil upon them. Credits. Roll. Uh, may I help you? Oh, I'd like two of those, please. Hot dogs? Yes, sir. And three of those, and one of those, and five bars of these, and a 
cup of a nice hot liquid. Uh, coffee. Uh, coming right up. Oh, and two bags of those peculiar white puffy material. Uh, you mean our crunchy popcorn. Uh, uh, shall I wrap that for you, sir? Oh, that's all right. My saucer's just outside. <laughs> they come from miles to enjoy our intermission. Now, this, at its core, is a really interesting bit of exploitation that we have here. You got a real low-budget, very amateur production that's both trying to be topical and accurate to real murders where it's applicable. And yet, at the same time, it's rather equally insulting and goofy when it comes to just how it's portraying Jerry as the Zodiac. His actions, yeah, they're horrific, especially when we see in the film him performing some of those, air quotes, the actual murders, the ones that we know about. But once we get to the ones that it's Jerry just kind of not going through, you know, the motions, where it's him showing his face, performing all the murders on screen, what we do then get to see is farcical heights. The scene that sticks out in my mind is the part of the montage of murders where he stops to help a little old lady on the street whose car is broken down. And then he tells her to look under the hood. And Reed slams the hood on her head and then he jumps up and down on the hood of the car. It's something that you would think you would see in a Three Stooges movie or with a Marx Brothers film. It's so silly, it's so over the top, and clearly it seems to be designed to be so ludicrous that it would upset the quote, true killer, provided he would have been around to watch the film. Hansen's attention to detail with his recreations of the various true killings are both effective and they're very chilling. But honestly, so were the circumstances they were committed. Like the scene with Grover in the first act where they're freestyling, then all of just the randomness that occurs in the last third of the picture, it really makes for an uneven and strange experience to watch this movie. Again, not bad, but it's sort of a strange, unique thing all onto its own. So, that said, as much as I would like to sing the praises of this film as a great piece of exploitation, and don't get me wrong, for a film of its time and stature, it absolutely earns its stripes as a bit of crazy filmmaking. The real excitement with this is getting into Hansen's attempts to actually catch the killer himself. Hansen took what meager means that he had, and he four-walled a theater. That really means he rents the complete rights to. He owns the box office, he's going to show the film, he'll get all the proceeds that come, because he pays for everything within that theater. So he four-walls the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco. And what he did was, he talked to the good folks at Kawasaki, and he got them to donate a motorcycle, and then he put that motorcycle up in the lobby on a pedestal box to be used as a lottery prize. Hansen opened his film, The Zodiac Killer, on April 7th, 1971, and all incoming guests who bought a ticket were issued a gold card, which he gave strict orders to the ticket booth ladies that they were only to issue one card per customer. On each gold raffle card was a serial number and a question. I think the Zodiac kills because... And then, upon entering the lobby, the folks were supposed to take their cards that they signed and put their names on and drop them in a slotted box in front of the motorcycle display, and therefore they would get a chance to win. Now, unbeknownst to the theater goers, and what's more, the theater management alike, Hansen had a team of five men working with him in an effort to set a trap to catch the killer. There was a hollowed space underneath the motorcycle, and Hansen had a man inside with a flashlight who had taken the cards that were dropped and he would be comparing them to handwriting samples that were published from the Zodiac Killer. If he had seen a handwriting sample that looked like it had a match, he had a button that he would depress that would send a signal to another man who was laying down inside of a freezer that was across in the lobby. 
The man in the freezer was supposed to be watching the outside of the box. So if he saw the light flash, he was supposed to then view who was putting the ticket in the box. And then he would signal to the guys who were out in the lobby or up in the booth to go and flag and catch that person. Hansen had himself patrolling the lobby with a pistol on his person. He had a man across the street watching the front door, and he had a man in the ticket office. Like all systems, though, there were a few bugs that needed to be worked out. It was hard being the guy in the freezer, because you were looking through an exhaust grate to try to see the motorcycle setup across the lobby floor. People were always walking in front of you. To make things worse, about five nights into this whole setup, for the guy in the freezer, he almost died because the air vent malfunctioned, which caused him to begin to lose consciousness because he was running out of oxygen, which forced the other men to intervene to save him. Now, the guys on this team are literally all the actors and friends of Hansen. Hal Reed, Bob Jones, Art Porine, who is Hansen's brother-in-law, Ray Cantell, who is the screenwriter, and a lad named Ray Lynch. On the night that the freezer incident occurred, where Ray Cantrell was stuck without air, a card got dropped into the slot that stated, I was here, signed the Zodiac. Unfortunately, because he can't get air and he was passed out, Ray never got a good look at who dropped the card in, because, you know, C can't breathe. And there was estimated to be somewhere between 40 and 50 people in the lobby that night. Hansen gets word from the guy under the cycle that he has a match, but he can't ID the person who dropped it. Hansen, thinking about it, went into the restroom during the film, and as he posted up at the urinal, a man walked in and striked up a conversation with him, stating, You know, real blood, it doesn't come out like that. Hansen recalls turning to look towards the man who was speaking at him, and responded, Oh yeah? Before freezing cold in his tracks. The man standing before him was 5'10", close-cropped brown hair, with glasses. According to Hansen, the spitting image of the police sketch personified. Hansen quickly exited the restroom, gathered his team together, and told them, clock where this guy's sitting, and we can't let him leave when the film lets out. The film ended. Hansen and his cadre of men grab the guy on either side and quickly escort him, without any incident, back into the theater office. And to his credit, the gentleman offered them no issue, and once more was not outraged. He instead was insanely polite, talking to the team about his time in Vietnam and being very understanding about their motives. Now, one has to understand, nothing that Hansen is doing here is technically legal. You can't just detain somebody because you think they might resemble a killer. You need a little more proof than that. Before Hansen, though, can get into the office, the guys on his team have already let him go, and he's already walking out back into the lobby. Hansen ends up confronting the guy himself in the lobby, asking him if the card they received that said the I was here message was indeed his, which the gentleman denied. He then outright accused the guy of being the Zodiac Killer, and when the guy denied it, he shockingly was polite with Hansen and said, well, just who are you? Hansen took a calculated risk and he lied to the man, stating, I'm Paul Stein's brother. I'm just trying to find the killer. To Hansen's disappointment, the man did not get mad, and instead he expressed his sympathies and complete understanding. The guy, though, didn't have any ID on him, and this made Hansen even further suspicious, and he looked at the paratrooper boots, which were actually wing walkers. Apparently those were the style of boots that were found in the tracks left by the killer at the lake scene. But again, in the end, they couldn't detain this man any longer. And even if the police did come, what were they going to do? Hansen did find out where the man was staying, though. He mentioned he was at the Astoria. And Hansen would go on to continue to call the Astoria multiple times that night to ascertain if the guy really was there. On probably his sixth call at about 1.30 a.m., Hail Mary move, the guy actually ends up picking up when Hansen called, 
and he had to feign an apology towards him once again, basically asking the guy for forgiveness, hoping he didn't cause the man too much distress. And again, the chap takes this all very graciously and says, please don't worry about it. Hansen was equally disturbed the next day when the man showed up again at the theater looking personally to talk to Hansen, wanting to know again if he was okay, which Hansen himself thought was very suspicious and creepy. He just walked in. He wanted to see if I was okay, claiming he was concerned. I thought that was suspicious, like he wanted to check in and see if he was still a suspect in our book. To this day, as far as Hansen was convinced, he had been talking to the Zodiac, even though he couldn't prove it. Eventually, though, Hansen couldn't afford to keep renting the theater and paying to show the film out of pocket. He was forced to sell as a distributor rights and pack everything in. All in all, the Zodiac Killer ended up being sold to Radley Metzger for distribution, and it did get to play in a few other grindhouses and in drive-in theaters. Now, I can hear you out there. How is this movie received? Well, when I say not well, it's not because people hated it. It's because not enough people saw it, period. There are not even reviews available for The Zodiac Killer from the time it was released, which honestly should not really surprise anybody. It wasn't screened for critics. It didn't have a wide release. It had that four wall, and that was just if you happened to live in that neighborhood and buy a ticket. So it was not seen by a large amount of people. If one is to go out to Rotten Tomatoes as of this recording, it still holds zero reviews from any sort of critic, and it's coming in at 18% with audience members who've actually seen it. The film was lost to time, especially since it was eclipsed when in December of that same year, Don Siegel released his classic Clint Eastwood picture, Dirty Harry, which was a big-budget release that covered somewhat of the same story, although far more fictionalized, well-funded, well-acted, and, let's face it, pretty much better in every way. The Zodiac was replaced by the Scorpio Killer, and Dirty Harry was gonna catch him and get his man. Still... All of that said, this film is not without its charm. Now, Hansen would go on to make other films, including a heist comedy, A Ton of Grass Goes to Pot, in 1972, but he would still never get the success that he was craving. He would still continue to make an effort to find the killer on his own, though, again, with the specified logic that it would be a boost to his own films and goals. He hired a bunch of private detectives, and he started a postcard prize scheme, still angling to try to use his sort of unique way of identifying handwriting samples, and he was also hoping to get fingerprints from potential suspects. He tried this three times, and all of his efforts failed. He also kept attempting to tail that man that he had questions about from the theater. The police, though, did not believe him and had already cleared that man as a suspect, even though Hansen still maintains that was the guy. He would go on later to claim that the PIs that he was working with would stiff him and would steal all of the evidence that he had collected, leaving him with nothing to show for his efforts after all the years of work. Recently, though, in a 2019 documentary, it's been stated that Hansen is going to be featured in his own film. Titled The Zodiac Man, the story of the man who made a movie to catch a killer. It's been in production now, and there's been some buzz, especially in light of the success of films like The Disaster Artist, and, what's more, an attempt to get James Franco to come on board because they hear he likes this sort of thing, they would like to put together a feature that would tell Hansen's story to a larger audience. Now, for the record, the Zodiac Killer himself was never caught. Author Robert Graysmith, who was the cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, and the subject of the 2007 David Fincher film based on his own 1986 book of the same name, he had alleged for years that the killer was a man by the name of Arthur Lee Allen, but all evidence around Allen at the time for various killings was circumstantial and really couldn't be utilized. As time has gone on and police forensics have gotten more sophisticated, DNA samples found on letters and envelopes did not match Allen's in the slightest, which absolved his involvement even further. There are others, though, who have been speculated as to being the killer's true identity, but again, to this day, the killer remains unknown. Hell, 
The Z340 cipher that the Zodiac sent to the papers on November 8, 1969, that would take another 51 years to solve. And it wasn't cracked until December 5th of 2020 by a team of average citizens, including a software engineer, a mathematician, and a programmer. All which served to prove that the man who was speaking on the phone to Lawyer Belly was actually not the true Zodiac. Still, it's a mystery that remains today, and an intriguing one at that. The version of the Zodiac Killer screened here at the LSCE was the 2017 joint release from the America Genre Film Archive and Something Weird video on Blu-ray, and it comes with a fair bit of extras. It's a full 4K scan of the original 16mm print of the film. Audio commentary is available from director Hansen and his producer Manny Nedwick, as well as on-camera interviews with both Hansen and Nedwick. Plus, you get the original Tom Hansen Temple of Schlock interview from 2010 by Chris Pagiali and a selection of horror trailers from the Something Weird Archive and Agva Archive combined, including reversible sleeve artwork and a bonus out there B-movie, Another Son of Sam from 1977. Plus, you get the copy of this on Blu-ray and DVD to boot. So, all of this embarrassment of riches can be yours on Amazon today for the low price of $22.99, which I would say is well worth it for some out there stunt filmmaking. But hey, what if you're interested in true crime and you'd like to learn more about the Zodiac phenomenon? Might I suggest Robert Graysmith's 1986 monograph, Zodiac, the very book that the 2007 David Fincher film was based on. That could be yours for the low price of $7.64, and it's a hell of a read for those who can't get enough about this case or this time period. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here for telling you where to make purchases. We just feel it's important in this day and age to continue to support physical media so that the fine folks who own the rights to the content that we all know and love will continue to release it. And at the end of the day, isn't that what's important? Getting more of the stuff that you know and love? Besides, this film is connected to such a strange time, to such an interesting story. I don't think it's quite had its time in the sun yet. So I say, what are you waiting for? Get out there. Get yourself a copy of The Zodiac Killer today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. This closes out our month of Z-grade drive-in films, and that opens us up for being haunted by a specter of continuity, as May is going to see us feature the return of Wait, What? That's our selection of some head-scratching, bigger-budget releases, so we do hope you're going to come back and join us then. If you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Or hey, please just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like the list that we're a part of to give us a boost in the rankings. More reviews and increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be more personal or wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.
And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.